The largest religion in the world, by far, is Christianity, 2.5 billion people and counting. And at the heart of Christianity is a mystery. In that sense, it's one of the great mysteries of the world, not the kind of mystery you solve, like an equation, but rather the kind of mystery you explore. The great mystery at the heart of Christianity is the mystery of Easter, the mystery of resurrection. And so the mystery of the death that led to the resurrection, and the mystery of the life that led to the death that led to the resurrection. To understand Easter, in other words, you have to begin at the beginning with the book of Genesis and the oldest gospel of the four, the gospel of Mark. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part one of our seven-part series on understanding Easter. So, let's start at the beginning. Not the beginning of the world, but the beginning of your world. Your beginning. Picture your crib, your nursery. Or if you can't remember it, picture any nursery or any young child's bedroom. Do you see it? Is there a mobile of the planets hanging from the ceiling? Stuffed animals piled in the corner? And there on the wall, is there a picture of a boat? A wooden ship with a giraffe and an elephant on board? A rainbow in the background? Or maybe it's a wooden toy on the dresser with little figurines. A hippo and a kangaroo and a little Noah with a tiny white beard and a dove with a green olive branch in its beak. The tale of Noah's Ark is one of the most famous of the Bible's stories. Show me a church nursery and I'll show you an ark. A poster or a toy or a charming children's book. Charming, that is, until someone says, wait a minute. Charming? Isn't this a story about a violent catastrophe? A god who destroys humanity and the Earth's land animals, all except a single human family in a floating zoo? And while it's nice to know, I guess, as we look up at the rainbow in the clouds, that God promises never to send a cataclysmic flood like that again, doesn't that same rainbow just remind us that God sent the first flood? And that God does that kind of thing? That God could destroy us again by some other means? Come to think of it, isn't that rainbow really less like a comfort and more like a threat? Many people read the Bible up close, on the level of the words in a verse, or a handful of verses, or a particular episode, or a brief turn of events. And it's not difficult to understand why. Many people experience the Bible in worship, where typically a few verses are read at a time and then expounded in a sermon. And likewise, many people experience the Bible in small group Bible studies, where again, the teaching and discussion tend to focus on particular relatively brief passages. And so most people think about the Bible at that level of granularity, down on the ballroom dance floor, so to speak, not up on the balcony, from where you can see the whole dance unfold. But Genesis, for example, is a book full of sweeping sagas and panoramic storylines, down on the dance floor, at the level of the individual words and verses and short sections, there's a lot going on. 
But to get the full picture, from time to time we have to get up onto the balcony too, because it's only from there that we can make out the big bold strokes, the dynamics of the dance that only become visible when we get some distance on the details. Take the creation stories at the beginning of Genesis, for example. The big idea is that God creates the world as a home, as a habitat for creatures, and so as an act of hospitality. God moves over the inhospitable, chaotic, watery face of the deep and creates day and night and sky and sea and land as places where birds of the air and fish of the sea and creatures of the land may live. And then, last of all, God makes a being in the image of the divine host, a being capable of hospitality, intelligence, and love, a human being made to take care of the whole menagerie. And just as when we practice hospitality, preparing our home to host an honored guest, fluffing the pillows and putting fresh flowers out on the table, We do that work not merely for the sake of being a host, not even merely for the sake of making our guest feel at home. Ultimately, we do it for the sake of facilitating and enjoying our relationship with our guest, connecting with our guest, being together, enjoying each other's company. That's why we do it. That's what hospitality is for. And that's why God does it, too. God wants to be with us, to live with us, to enjoy each other's company. Emmanuel, God with us, doesn't start on Christmas Day. It starts on the first day of creation. But humanity, the story goes, doesn't respond in kind. We're anxious, we're oblivious, we're insensitive, we're fearful. We turn away from God's gracious gifts and God's loving desire to be with us. And yet, God refuses to give up on us. Stay here on the balcony and consider another book in the biblical library from a wide angle, the book of Exodus. God reaches out again through Moses and Miriam, leading the Israelites out of enslavement and into freedom. Freedom from hate and oppression, yes, but also freedom for being a people of love and justice, living together with the God of love and justice. At Mount Sinai, this arrangement is called a covenant. It's not explicitly called a covenant in the creation stories, but the idea is there, plain as day, to live together with God in lives of dignity, helping to take care of the world, human beings and birds of the air and fish of the sea, the whole neighborhood, without exception. And so when we fall away from this calling, from this living together with God, in other words, when we sin, we effectively turn away from each other and from the garden. We forfeit our birthright. We turn away from ourselves, from the people we are born to be. As the authors of Genesis tell it, after the exile from Eden, humanity loses its way, becomes tragically, catastrophically lost. Cain's murder of Abel is a harbinger of things to come, and violence floods the earth, filling every nook and cranny. That's the reason, the storytellers say, that God, heartbroken, mourns what has become of creation and resolves to begin again.
Now, to understand what happens next, we need to climb up even higher, surveying the story not from 10,000 feet, but from 110,000 feet. The ancient world had many cultures, of course, hundreds of them, and a great many of those cultures told stories of a primordial flood. Ancient Israel's neighbors had such stories, so did cultures on the other side of the world. One scholar has collected over 200 ancient flood stories from present-day India, China, Native America, all of them narrating a great flood, typically caused by divine action, and nearly all of them featuring a single family who survives, often on a boat that comes to rest on a mountaintop at the story's end. The point is that when the authors of Genesis sat down to write their version of the story, or to collect the versions already circulating, the importance or legitimacy of the subject would have been taken for granted. Every educated person in the ancient world would have been aware of the stories of the Great Flood, and from their point of view, only God could have caused it. The open questions were, why? And what does it say about God? And what does it say about us. On the face of it, the very idea of a primordial, divinely caused destructive flood seems to say that God is violent, that God operates through violence, a brutal, divine warrior. And by extension, what it seems to say about us is that if we know what's good for us, we ought to live in fear of God's brutality, of God's anger, of the divine warrior's vindictive, callous power. Now, as we've seen, these ideas are the opposite of what many of the authors and editors of Genesis thought about God and about humanity. For example, as the creation stories make clear, God is not a callous, vindictive warrior, but rather a creative, gracious host. God's mode of exercising divine power is hospitality, liberation, healing, shepherding a flock through the wilderness living together with God's people, enjoying each other's company. That's who God is. That's what God wants. And so, the conundrum. How do you compose a story about a primordial, divinely caused, destructive flood, such that the upshot of the story, the takeaway, is that God is not a brutal warrior, but a gracious host? That we are not to be fearful, cowering servants, but rather humble, confident deputies, caring for creation in covenantal partnership with the Creator. That's the conundrum. And what do the ancient Israelite storytellers do? They take the story into the nursery. The Bible was not written by fundamentalists. Let me explain. There's a kind of theme park in northern Kentucky called Ark Encounter. It's a life-size construction of Noah's Ark, built to the gargantuan specifications laid out in the book of Genesis. For the price of a ticket, you can tour the ship and see cages with fabricated animals, stacked ceramic jars of drinking water and olive oil, read placards with elaborate arguments about how all the world's species could have fit on this one boat, visit Noah's living quarters, an extensive gift shop. The, the whole experience is organized around the idea that the story of Noah in Genesis is a kind of journalism, a straightforward, factual account. It's a kind of physical manifestation of a fundamentalist, so-called literalist, reading of the Bible. 
And as you walk around in it, the remarkable thing is how it inadvertently helps demonstrate that the story isn't journalism at all. Here's what I mean. According to Genesis, the ark is 300 cubits long. Now, a cubit is about a foot and a half, so that's a nearly 500-foot-long ship. That's an entire football field and then another half of a football field. It's huge. But when you're standing in line to get into the Ark Encounter, there are these monitors set up playing a brief film on a loop, telling the story of how the theme park was actually built. And there they are, this enormous construction crew with modern heavy machinery erecting the largest freestanding timber structure in the world, which is pretty impressive, $100 million in costs. I mean, it's just monumentally, bluntly, plainly obvious that one man or one family couldn't possibly have built it. I mean, just cutting down and preparing and hauling the timber alone would have been out of the question. Undoubtedly, this is the opposite reaction that the fundamentalist creators of the Ark Encounter intend to elicit. But it's unavoidable. One of the quickest ways to realize that the story of Noah shouldn't be taken as journalistic fact is to visit the Ark Encounter in northern Kentucky. But bear in mind, the story's ancient authors and early readers understood perfectly well what a cubit was and the amount of timber one man and his family could actually cut down and prepare and haul, never mind gathering enough food to feed representatives of all the Earth's species. Think of it, enough food to feed every species of animal for weeks. This is not journalism. This is an ancient fable. That's the kind of story it is. That's the genre it belongs to, for us, and also for its ancient authors. They knew perfectly well what they were writing. Now, this isn't to denigrate the story or deny its power or the extent to which it may convey important truths. It's simply to identify the kind of story it is. In that sense, it's to take the story seriously on its own terms. The story of Noah in Genesis is plainly and unabashedly full of hyperbole. One family building a mammoth refuge for all the Earth's animal species. Hyperbole isn't even the right word. It's so over the top that it's not even exaggeration anymore. It's something different. It's another type of narrative, written in highly stylized, poetic form. It's a fable. This kind of storytelling compares to journalism in the same way that a painting by Vincent van Gogh compares to photography. It's not that van Gogh created a fictional or figurative version of a starry night. That's not the right way to look at it. He's trying to use the power of painting to get to the essence of what it's like to experience a night sky to get even closer to that essence than a photograph can get. Van Gogh actually once said that he was seeking a form of painting that was more realistic than photography. This kind of thing is actually pretty common in visual art and also in music and poetry, this move toward the essence of things. Did it happen in exactly this way? That's the wrong question. The better question is, does this story or this painting help us get to the truth? to the essence of its subject? 
This comparison to Van Gogh is also helpful for another reason. Starry Night is a playful painting. Part of how it gets to the essence of its subject is its boldness, its vibrancy, its vitality. It's willing to play with how the starry heavens look and feel precisely in order to evoke how they actually do look and feel. The story of Noah, too, for all the seriousness of its subject, doesn't take itself too seriously. It doesn't get bogged down, for example, in journalistic details, another indication that it wasn't written by fundamentalists. The story is an unembarrassed collage of at least two traditions. One says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The other says it rained for 150 days, not 40. One says that the animals entered the ark two by two. And then, just five verses later, the other says the animals entered seven by seven. No fundamentalist could write a story like that. And of course, the ancient authors and editors that compiled the book of Genesis were perfectly capable of reconciling these differences or choosing one of these traditions and deleting the other, but they didn't. They just boldly and playfully and seriously included them both, side by side. And the overall effect is that the whole idea of journalistic accuracy is set aside. It's a clear signal. This is not the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. This is something else. This is an ancient, playful, serious, truthful fable. In the 21st century, probably the literary genre that's closest to this kind of thing is children's literature, boldly and playfully and seriously getting down to the essence of things. That's what's actually quite fitting about Noah's Ark being in the nursery, provided we remember that some of the greatest writing the world has ever known is on the children's literature shelf. That's the shelf where we put the great fables that enrich the lives of young and old alike. No, the Bible wasn't written by fundamentalists. It was written by adventurous, imaginative, theological artists, intent on getting to the essence of things, co-opting and transforming the grim story of a great flood into something hopeful, inspiring, and new. So how did they do it? Well, first, they made sure it was clear, at least to those who have eyes to see, that the story is a fable. And second, they crafted the fable to be about God reprising the work of creation, starting virtually from scratch, not because God loves violence, but precisely because God abhors violence. The fable begins this way. Human hearts, the storyteller says, were inclined towards evil, and the earth was filled with violence. The very opposite of what God intends for the world, so God resolves to go back to square one. And of course, square one in the book of Genesis is the watery face of the deep. In other words, the Genesis storytellers recast the great flood as a return to the beginning. It's a restart for creation. Noah is a new Adam. His wife, traditionally identified as Naamah, meaning sweetness or grace, is a new Eve. The name Adam is a play on the word Adama, or soil, or earth. And at the end of the Noah story, Noah is called a man of the soil. 
And just like Adam, Noah is a divinely deputized steward, a caretaker for the world's other creatures, a host whose job it is to make sure that they have all they need to survive and thrive. The Ark is a new start for creation and also for humanity. The dishonorable violence of Cain, the storytellers insist, must give way to the honorable hospitality of Noah and Naamah. And the idea that God is violent and exclusive, the storytellers insist, must give way to the idea that God is peaceful and radically inclusive. When I was a kid, when I thought of the bow in the rainbow, I always thought it was like a bow on a Christmas present, like a colorful ribbon in the sky. But the word bow here in Genesis refers to an archer's bow, a warrior's bow. When God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, the point is that God is hanging up the archer's bow, setting aside the paradigmatic divine weapon once and for all. In this fable, not only does God abhor violence, God renounces violence. The storytellers co-opt the classic flood story, flipping the script into its opposite, a declaration that God is a God of peace. The archer's bow up there in the clouds, if you think about it, it's pointed away from the earth. It's disarmed. Just as we are to care for the creatures of the earth, so the God of peace has promised to care for us. And make no mistake, the rainbow promise isn't only a renunciation of flooding, it's a renunciation of destruction. I will never destroy, God says, in any form. An archer's bow, after all, has nothing to do with flooding. The rainbow promise is a declaration that God is a God of peace, not war, salvation, not destruction. This is the first time in Genesis that the word covenant appears. What was implicit in the creation stories is now, in this restart, made crystal clear. I have set my bow in the clouds, God says, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The first covenant, the original covenant, the clarification of creation's roles and purposes is a covenant of peace, of salvation, of living together and taking care of each other. The archer's bow has been retired, up in the clouds, red and green and blue. And just as striking, the divine promise of peace and salvation is for everyone. In this restart of creation, God's covenant is universal. No one is excluded, neither bird nor bee, Republican or Democrat, Christian or Muslim or humanist or none of the above. Here, too, the Genesis storytellers have flipped the script, transforming what might have looked like a dour story of God excluding everyone except Noah and a few animals into a winsome fable about how God's promise of peace includes the whole wide world. And please note, God establishes this universal covenant in chapter 9, having already recognized in chapter 8 that this new rendition of humanity, the descendants of Noah and Naamah, are no better than the descendants of Adam and Eve. Their hearts are still inclined toward evil, God says, but God will have compassion for them anyway. 
And so in chapter 9, when God declares the universal covenant of peace, the clear implication is that the covenant is unconditional. It doesn't depend on our good behavior. Rather, it depends solely on God's compassionate, loving forgiveness. And there it is, the most playful, mischievous reversal of them all. You can catch sight of it from the satellite view, from 110,000 feet, the Genesis storytellers transforming what otherwise would have been a story of punishment into a story of forgiveness, a sword into a plowshare. The archer's bow hung up in the clouds for good, red and green and blue. The promise of peace, of salvation, God's compassion, sweetness, grace, showered down like rain over every living creature. The Gospel of Mark, too, declares a new beginning, one that echoes the fable of Noah and Naamah. Mark begins with the waters of baptism. In a sense, it's Mark's birth narrative for Jesus. He emerges from the Jordan, and God declares, You are my child, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. One last time, let's climb up onto the balcony. Baptism is itself an echo of the fable of Noah and Naamah. On one hand, it's a kind of flood. The Greek word we translate as baptize literally means to drown. And on the other hand, it's a kind of new birth, a new creation, a restart. God's Spirit moves over the face of the waters just as it did in the beginning. The dove appears and descends just as it did in the new beginning in the fable of Noah and Naamah, an echo of that ancient story. And the echoes keep coming. The Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness for, you guessed it, 40 days. In many books across the biblical library, 40 is a shorthand for a long time. But here it also evokes the 40 years the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness and the 40 days and 40 nights Noah and Naamah and the animals spent wandering in the waters of the flood. As if to underscore the point, Mark adds that in the wilderness, as he faced down Satan's temptations, Jesus wasn't alone. The wild beasts, Mark says, were there with him. Jesus is a new Noah. And so begins Jesus' public ministry, the ministry that will end with the mystery of Easter, the cross and the empty tomb. But to understand how it ends, we have to start with how it begins. It begins with water. It begins with God's Spirit descending like a dove, like Noah's dove, with a fresh olive leaf. It begins with 40 days of struggle in the company of wild beasts. Jesus' ministry begins, in other words, by reminding us of that ancient fable, that new beginning, that restart of creation, that peace and hope and red and green and blue. On the eve of his death, Jesus will proclaim a new covenant at the Last Supper. A new covenant, he says, for the forgiveness of sins. And likewise, at the outset of his ministry, he opens by reminding us of the original covenant, the breathtaking, graceful, universal promise of forgiveness, the covenant, God says, between me and the earth 
between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. As we'll see, Jesus' new covenant doesn't improve upon or supersede the original rainbow covenant. On the contrary, it fulfills it. It embodies it. It returns us to it, bringing us back to basics, back to the essence of things, the peaceable kingdom, the bow in the clouds, a life lived with God and God with us, all of us, all creatures great and small. That kingdom, that reign of God, Jesus declares, has come near, calling us to change accordingly, not out of fear, cowering at the feet of a tyrant, but rather out of confidence and gratitude, rejoicing by the side of a shepherd. For the tide has turned. Despite how things might look, the dove has descended. The 40 days and 40 nights, or the 150 days and 150 nights, if you like, are coming to an end. The great mystery of Easter is like a vast landscape, and over the course of this series, we'll keep exploring, picking up clues along the way. But this is the place to begin, looking down from 110,000 feet so we can see the wide, broad strokes of the story. First of all, God's hospitable, gracious desire to live with us, to enjoy each other's company. Second, God's boundless, peaceful, graceful covenant of forgiveness, red and green and blue. And third, our singular calling as custodians of creation. This is the place to begin with an ancient fable, complete with a boat no one could ever build and a mission no one could ever complete, but no matter for those extravagant details simply alert us to the fact that this isn't journalism. It's something deeper. It's a kind of storytelling designed to reveal not the surface, but the substance of things. Not a flat photograph, but a vibrant, shimmering masterpiece of a starry night. And so this is the place to begin, in the nursery, the room of essences, of basics, the mobile of the planets, the unforgettable fables on the shelf. For as we set out to explore one of the greatest mysteries in the world, we'd best remember at the outset that deep down, each one of us is a beloved child of God, with whom God is well pleased. That is where Easter begins. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. So drop us a line, let us know what you think. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.